All right, uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, again, as we said earlier, uh, just a little recap. We looked at uh, the end of Revelation chapter 2, which would have been verses 17 through 29. It was the fourth of the seven letters. It was the letter to the church in Thyatira. And as we said, Thyatira was known as the corrupt church. Now, this was a church that had some good things going for it. Jesus does commend them for their love and service and for their faith and patience. And unlike the church in Ephesus who had left their first love, that was the problem in Ephesus. They had many things going for it, but they left their first love. Uh, Thyatira was commended for their love. So Thyatira, in that sense, if you're looking at the aspect of love or the characteristic or attribute of love, Thyatira was sort of like the anti-Ephesus. So Ephesus left their first love. Thyatira was commended for its love. And moreover, as Jesus says to this church, they were growing in their good works. He says, your deeds are better or more than the first. But as with many of these churches that we have seen so far, Thyatira had a fatal flaw. They had a problem that was going to result in them losing their lampstand if they did not repent. And that problem was they had allowed a false prophetess into their midst, a woman, a false prophetess called Jezebel. And we looked at that. Uh, the name was not literally Jezebel, but they used the name Jezebel to refer to the Old Testament woman, Jezebel, and saying that this woman was like the Jezebel of the Old Testament. She was a false prophetess who introduced idolatry and immorality into the church, much like Jezebel had corrupted King Ahab and introduced Baal worship into Israel, thus degrading their worship. So they had been corrupted because of Jezebel introducing Baal worship, and they became idolatrous and adulterous and uh, worshiping a false religion. So, so much so that this Jezebel was already past the point of repentance. So Jesus calls the church to repent, but he says that this false prophetess was already past the point of repentance. She, she had already missed her opportunity, but her followers are urged to repent before Jesus brings judgment upon them. Then Jesus reaches out to the faithful remnant in Thyatira, tells them to keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing the good things that you're doing, and he's going to lay no other burden upon them. Just keep doing what you're doing, and that's it. You don't need to do any more. And then he says to the, the promise to the overcomer, the one who perseveres to the end, that person will rule the nations with Jesus. So that's the letter to the church in Thyatira. 
Now, as I like to do before we get into the text itself, I want to talk a little bit about the city of Sardis. So we try to look a little bit at what's going on in these cities, because a lot of what goes on in these letters is pulled from the history of these cities in real life. So Sardis was a city of about 30 miles south of Thyatira. And if you remember, I think a few weeks back, I gave you a map and it starts off in Ephesus and it goes north. And then when it hits Thyatira, now it's starting to go south. So it's kind of a circular route in Asia Minor on the west end of Asia Minor. So Sardis is a city that's about 30 miles south of Thyatira. Now, Sardis was a prominent commercial and military city in history, going back before this time in the Roman Empire. Among the famous structures in the city of Sardis was its Acropolis, or its its high place. It had an Acropolis. It was an unfinished temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. And this temple was so grand that it actually rivaled that that was in Ephesus itself. Sardis also had an impressive necropolis, or a literally the word means city of the dead, but it was a, a cemetery. It was a cemetery of a thousand hills, they called it, because it had hundreds and hundreds of visible burial mounds. So you had all, the, you had this basically just a very large cemetery in Sardis. The Acropolis was situated on a hill about 800 feet above the town, and it was considered to be impregnable due to the fact that they had nearly sheer uh, cliff walls on all sides except the south side of the Acropolis. So there was only one way up. And then, you know, when you think about that, you're on a high perch and there's only one way to get to you. It would seem very, very easy to defend and very, very hard to take over. But despite this reputation of being impregnable, the city of Sardis was actually captured twice in its history. So this impregnable city, sort of like the unsinkable boat, the Titanic, it was sinkable. And of course, the problem with an unsinkable boat, you only have to sink it once. You don't need to sink it more than once. Once it's sunk, it's sunk. Well, this city, Sardis, was impregnable, but it was conquered twice in its history. The first time was by King Cyrus of Persia in the 6th century B.C. And the second time was by... Antiochus, 200 years after that, so about the 4th century B.C. Now, the thing about this is both times the city was taken, it was taken by surprise. It was taken by surprise after opposing forces found a way to nullify the defensive advantages that Sardis had. In fact, one story says that the Persian army was encamped around the city and uh, some Persian spies noticed that a I don't know how you, a sar, I don't want to call him a sardine, but a, sar, a soldier from Sardis had lost his helmet over uh, a precipice. And he, they saw him walk down like this very narrow passageway to retrieve his helmet. So as he's going back up, the, the, the Persians sent a small contingent of soldiers to follow after him unbeknownst. And they were able to get into the city without anybody knowing and then open the gates and then just made for a very easy conquest after that point. Now, Sardis, aside from the fact that it was impregnable, even though it got captured twice, was also a very wealthy city. And it was actually at one point in time the capital of Asia during the reign of the Persians. So when the Persians, of course, took it over, the Persians occupied Asia Minor. Sardis was their capital in Asia Minor. 
but then it lost that um, that uh, prestige because during the um, Roman Empire, it was Smyrna, I believe, that was the actual capital of Asia Minor under the Roman Empire. So it lost all of its political influ- influence, and the luxurious living of its residents led to a moral decay in the city. So this the city became morally corrupt after a while. In fact, one writer said of Sardis that it was a city of peace, just not the peace won through battle, but the peace of the man whose dreams are dead and whose mind is asleep, the peace of lethargy and evasion. Now, as we hear this history of Sardis, you can kind of see things that are going on in Sardis. You can see Jesus brings this out in this letter that he's writing to them. And we'll uh, play into those a little bit as we get to them. Now, as we get into the text in Revelation 3, uh, in verse 1, the first half of verse 1, we get the introduction to Christ and the command to write the letter, where, as with all the letters we've seen so far, Jesus commands John to write to the angel in the church, angel of the church in Sardis. And he says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So here Jesus introduces himself to the church as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as I've been saying all along, all of these images that Jesus draws when he introduces himself to these churches is drawn out of chapter one, when Jesus gives the general introduction to John and John, and he gets that vision of the exalted Christ. All of these images are pulled out of that chapter. So the reference to the seven spirits of God is found in Revelation 1, verse 4, where, if if you're interested, you could turn over there. And here, this is John now writing the introduction to the entire book of Revelation to all of the seven churches. And he says, uh, John, introduces himself, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and so on and so forth. So here's, you see that reference to the seven spirits of God that are before his throne. And this is a reference. If you remember from that time when we looked at this, that talks about the fullness of the spirit. It is the completeness of the spirit. In fact, in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the prophet writes, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is the servant. This is Jesus. He is the the, uh, shoot from the, the, the root of Jesse. That's how that passage goes in Isaiah 11. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord. So you've got the sevenfold spirit there. The spirit is referred to and named seven times. And that fullness of the spirit then dwells or rests upon Jesus Christ, the one who is the shoot from the stem of Jesse. Now in Revelation 1 verse 16, this is now in that vision of the exalted Christ. You get this, this um, mention of the one who has the seven stars in his right hand. 
where in verse 16 he says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And then we said, you know, later on you find out that the mystery of the seven stars is explained to John. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the fact that he's got the seven stars in his hand is just a, a way of saying that Jesus is in control of the church. He is the overseer of the overseers of the church. So he's the one who holds the fullness of the church in his hand. He is the one who is the great shepherd and overseer of the church. He is the one who holds his under shepherds, his messengers, his angels in his hand. So that's how Jesus introduces himself to the church in Sardis. He is the one who has the fullness of the spirit. And that's going to come into play a little bit later. And he's the one who holds the messengers of the church in his hand. Now Jesus goes on to the diagnosis. So each of these letters has a diagnosis of a problem. Or as Jesus looks and examines the church, he sort of uh, evaluates the church based on his omnipotence and his omniscience. And we see this in the last half of verse 1 where he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, unlike previous letters where Jesus usually says something positive about the church, Sardis is a church that he says nothing positive about. There are two churches that receive no rebuke from him, and there are two churches that receive no commendation from him. Sardis is the church, one of the churches that receives no commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. The other one will be Laodicea, which will be the last of the seven letters. So he says nothing good to them. But what he does say of the church is that they have a name or a reputation of being alive, but in reality, they're dead. So despite what the church had going for it from a perception standpoint, Jesus looks right through that uh, image, that false reputation, and actually pronounces the church dead. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. Now, someone can ask me, what is the difference between a church that is alive and one that is dead? That's a good question. What is the difference between a church that is alive and a church that is dead? What makes a church dead versus it being alive? Well, whatever it is, it must be something that goes beyond mere observation because the church in Sardis looked like it was alive, right? It looked like it was a vibrant, lively church. But Jesus says, no, you're dead. So whatever it is that differentiates between a live and a dead church, it has to be beyond just mere observation. You can't just look at it and say, well, that looks alive because it could be dead. That's what Jesus says. Now, in terms of the church, the Reformed tradition, the tradition from which we come out of, has taught in terms of true and false churches. So I'm going to make a correlation between living in dead churches and true and false churches. Okay? Now, a true church, according to Reformed tradition, exhibits marks that identify it as a true church. Now, in the history of the Reformed tradition, it has generally been agreed upon that there are three marks of a true church. Three marks of a true church. You can see this in our own Belgic Confession. So if you are interested, you can look at 
in the in the hymnals. They have a Belgian you know, the, the Belgic Confession is printed there. It is Article Twenty Nine of the Belgic Confession talks about the marks of a true church, and the marks are these. The three marks are these. First is the pure uh, the preaching of the pure gospel. So a true church has to have the preaching of the pure gospel. The second thing is the pure administration of the sacraments. So baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have to administer the sacraments of the Lord. You have to preach the pure gospel of the Lord. And the third thing is you have to faithfully exercise church discipline. Okay, so preaching of the gospel, administration of the sacraments, exercise of discipline. Now, we hear discipline, we think that's just like punishment for doing something bad. Well, it includes that. But discipline really is just the idea of training people up, of teaching people. All right, if you go to the mission statement of the church, who here knows where you can find the mission statement of the church? Matthew 28. Called, it's called something, the Great Commission. There you go. The Great Commission is the mission statement for the church, where Jesus says, Go therefore into all nations and teach them everything that I've said, that I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That is the mission statement of the church. You go into all the nations. As you're going into all the nations, you teach them everything the Lord has commanded them to teach, and you baptize them. So sacraments, discipline, word of God, all three of those things are there in the Great Commission. So discipline just means to teach up. Now, it can also mean to exercise punishment for failure to follow uh, the instruction of the church. When we practice that here, you can excommunicate somebody for uh, very uh, uh, deep and um, immoral activities. If they're unrepentant, you can actually bar them from the table. You can excommunicate them and remove them from the church from the communion of the church. So that is a form of discipline, but discipline in general just means to train people up, just means to teach. So just like individual Christians, churches can manifest these three marks with more or less consistency. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it's talking about the church, says that the church, there are more pure and less pure churches because no church exhibits these marks perfectly to the best or highest extent possible. So there's a mixture of, you know, how well they, you know, some churches are probably better at discipline. Some churches are better better at doing the sacraments or preaching the gospel, whatever the case may be. Just like every Christian, you know, has its, you know, his good days, his bad days and things like that. So just as in individual Christians, churches can manifest these three marks with more or less consistency. But based on this, I wish to argue That a church that is truly alive is a church that exhibits all three marks to a greater or to a lesser extent. So you have to have all three to be a true church. And if you are a true church, then you are a church that is alive. Conversely, a dead church then would be one that has lost all three of the distinguishing marks of a true church. So in a sense, what I'm saying, if you are familiar with the language of you know, necessity and sufficiency, 
All three marks are necessary. You have to have all three marks to be a church. And all three of them together are sufficient for you to be a church. You can't lose or not have one of the marks. If you lose one of the marks, I I argue that you're not a true church any longer. Now, historically, some of the reformers have argued for the number of the marks being two or one. But regardless of where you stand in this, the one, if you argue for one true mark, it's always, always, always the word of God. And then now if you think about it, conformity to the word of God, if you are following the word of God, the other two kind of flow out of it anyway. Right. If you're if you're submitting yourself to the word of God, you're going to administer the sacraments. You're going to exercise discipline. So I argue for three. Our tradition argues for three. And there you go. Now, we're not told explicitly here what caused the death in Sardis, though there is a hint at it in verse two. But consider what we've seen so far in these letters. With the exception of the church in Smyrna, every other church had a fatal flaw. Okay? Ephesus left its first love. Pergamus tolerated the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Thyatira was seduced by the false prophetess Jezebel. So you had a loveless church, a compromising church, and a corrupt church. Yet each of these three churches, Jesus found something good to say about them. Not all of them were completely rotten to the core. They more or less had the marks of the church. But Sardis here is called the dead church. It is the dead church, which indicates to me that it had lost the marks along the way. They had a reputation of being a lively gospel preaching church, but at some point in their history, they lost that. And they were just living on the fumes and the vapors of their old reputation. So Sardis had a reputation of being alive. It may be dead on the inside, but it was living on the fumes of a vibrant past. So think about what Jesus says when he, when he confronts the Pharisees. And he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. Okay? So you look beautiful on the outside, but what he says on the inside is you're full of rotten, dead, stinking, decaying bones. You're full of death. And that's kind of what's going on here at Sardis. They had the veneer of a lively, vibrant church, but really inside it was dead. They were like a whitewashed tomb. And the history of the Christian church is filled with the corpses of dead churches. Not just empty buildings where once existed worship that glorified God, but also churches like Sardis, who once looked lively but are really dead. Just think of some of the denominations in just the United States. The Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. The oldest Presbyterian Church in the United States. It was the first established church in, uh, in the early 20th century. They kicked out J. Gresham Mason and he formed the OPC. But that church lost its hold on the biblical truths. And they were denying what they were called at the time the five fundamentals of the faith, which was the deity of Christ, the uh, divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, the miracles of Christ, the virgin birth, and I forget the fifth one off the top of my head, but they denied these cardinal truths of Scripture. They ceased to become a church. And and instead, they, they, they substituted the gospel for the social gospel. Think of the Reformed Church in America, not the Reformed Church in the United States, Reformed Church in America, which is an old Dutch 
uh, Reformed uh, denomination that came here, they went the way of apostasy long ago. Uh, The Christian Reformed Church, the United Church of Christ, which is something that was born out of the split in our own denomination many years ago, the you know, a sliver, <laughs> I think it was like, a, somebody told me, it was like one-tenth of one percent of the churches in our denomination held firm to the truth. The rest went the way of the merger and ended up forming the United Church of Christ, which is a very liberal, very gospel-denying uh, denomination, or the United Method Church, Methodist Church, not to mention uh, the churches that teach the prosperity gospel, the social gospel, the liberation gospel. All of these types of churches, all of these things are evidence of dead churches. They lost the gospel, they lost their mooring on the truth, and then everything else that flows out of that is gone because they've lost the gospel. So if a church refuses, if the church loses the gospel and refuses to submit itself to the authority of God's word, it may look alive, you may have living people walking in, breathing people walking in, you may hear singing through the, you know, outside the church, you may hear clapping, you may actually hear a lot of things that make it look like it, though this church must be really cooking with gas or something, but in reality, it's a dead church. So in verse 2, Jesus gives them a rebuke where he tells them to wake up, in case anybody was sleeping. <laughs> wake up! <laughs> Jesus rebukes the dead church by issuing five commands, the first two of which are here in verse 2, where he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Anybody here know anybody named Gregory? Not like a particular Gregory, just anybody know a Gregory in their life? Okay. You're just raising your hand, Mark. <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. The word for wake up is Gregorio, which is where you get the name Gregory. So it's someone who is watchful, who is awake, who is alert. Okay, so that's what the word means. Wake up, to be awake, to watch, to be alert. So like a driver nodding at the wheel when they're about to fall asleep, you need to wake up before something bad happens. And even though Jesus proclaims the church to be dead, we know that Jesus is in the business of reviving the dead, right? That's what Jesus does. That's what he does in John chapter 11. Lazarus is in the tomb. And eventually we'll get there, Lord willing, when we get there in John. But Lazarus is in the tomb. And the the gospel of John says he's in the tomb for how many days? Four days. Does anybody know the significance of four days? There's some legendary talk about it. But supposedly... The Jews believed that the spirit of a person who was dead hovered over that person for three days. So on the fourth day, they were not just dead, they were dead, dead, dead. Okay? Now, if you believe that legend, okay, either way, Lazarus is in the tomb, and he was in the tomb for a while, like a long weekend, okay? And he was already, you know, when they rolled the stone away, uh, it was Mary who says, but Lord, for sure he stinketh now. I mean, he's, he's already begun to decay. Yet Jesus is still able to revive him and to bring him back to life with a word where he says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. 
As I like to joke, he has to say Lazarus come out of the tomb because if he just says come out of the tomb, then all the dead people are going to start coming out of the tomb. He has to specify which dead guy comes out of the tomb. So Jesus is in the habit of reviving the dead. And even though this church was pronounced dead, there were still those in the church who were faithful. We see this in verse 4. There is a remnant in this church. It's like there was a remnant in Thyatira. It is to them that Jesus says, wake up. And then he says, strengthen those things that remain. And that word strengthen means to fix, to confirm, to establish. So it's like fortifying a falling barricade. Jesus commands them to strengthen the things that remain. So in a church context, this can mean something like, go back to preaching the gospel. You know those things that you say you believe? You know those things in those dusty old documents that you have somewhere in the church basement that say this is what this church believes? Go back to those things. It can mean going back to the pure administration of the sacraments. No more giving the Lord's Supper to infants, okay, or... Or whatever, you know, doing these things. You know, go back to the pure administration of the sacraments. Go back to the faithful exercise of church discipline. If there's somebody committing gross, grievous sin in the church, discipline them. Teach your children. Do these things. Discipline. In other words, go back to the ordinary means of grace and put them to use. It amazes me how many... Dead churches have Bibles in the pews and Orthodox confessions in their, in their pews, and they don't adhere to them. Put them to use. Now here in this verse, in verse 2, there's a potential reason for the pronouncement of death that you see in verse 1, where he says, Jesus says to the church, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And again, we're not told precisely what these works are that are incomplete, but partially completed works are unacceptable to God. Okay, so now if you, many of us have had children who are small, or now they're, of course, the Bowers, you still have kids that still live at home. And if you tell them to clean the room, and they only do like half the job, are you going to reward them? Are you going to reward them? No, okay, you're not... You're not going to reward someone for half a job. You don't get paid for half a job. Well, you could say, well, just give me half the pay. No, I agree. you do the whole job, and I agree to pay you for a whole job done. You don't give me half a job, because I'm not going to even pay you for half a job. In Luke 14, Jesus confronts a group of potential disciples and warns them, you need to consider the cost of discipleship. And then he gives them a story. He says, because you don't want to be like the guy who says, I'm going to build a tower, and then doesn't set out to figure out if he's got enough to build the tower. And then he starts to build the tower. He realizes, I don't have enough to build this tower. And all I've got is a stupid foundation, but no tower on top of it. So that's an unfinished work. You want to be able to know that you can finish the work. Many people start off strong in their faith. But if you think about the parable of the sower, yeah, the sower, the guy who scatters the seed, it really should be called the parable of the, the soils because that's what the important image in that parable is. But the guy, you know, the, the guy scatters the seed and seed falls in the weed-choked area. And it sprouts up quickly, but then it dies out because it's in the weed-choked area. Or he, he scatters some and it falls on the stony ground. 
And again, it sprouts up quickly, but then it dies out because of the heat bearing down upon it. It has no root to dig down and get the nourishment from the water. So both of these are, are plants or representative of Christians who start off strong, but don't finish the race because of whatever reason, the cares of the world or the intense heat of persecution, and they die out before they bear any fruit. The same goes for churches. So just like you wouldn't reward your children for half-completed chores, Jesus is not going to reward a church for incomplete deeds. So then he goes on to verse 3, and you get the other three commands. The warning here to remember, to keep, and to repent. Those are the other three commands. So after rebuking them for their incomplete works before God, Jesus issues a warning to the church. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So remember and keep and repent. Remember what you have received and heard. This is almost certainly a call to recall the faith that they had originally received and been taught. Remember what you were taught when you came to Christ? Remember that. Go back to that. This church once had a reputation of being alive. Then remember the things that built up that reputation. Sardis had lost the things that made it a church. It is time now to go back to them. But not only remember these things, but keep them. Do them. It doesn't do you any good to remember something and then just act as if you hadn't remembered it. Keep them. Observe and follow the faith. Hold fast to what is true. Reject what is false. And then finally, repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from the corruption, the compromise, the spiritual laziness and lethargy. Turn back to Jesus and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. All right, so Jesus further warns them of the dire consequences that they fail to heed his warning. So if you do not wake up, Sardis, the dead church, was asleep at the theological and spiritual wheel. And there is an oncoming semi of error and immorality approaching. So they need to wake up. They need to be alert. They need to watch out. And failure to wake up will result in Jesus coming like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. In other words, the failure of Sardis to be alert and awake will result in their being caught napping when Jesus brings a reckoning to this church. Now, again, think back what we said at the beginning about Sardis. What was Sardis? It had a reputation of being an impregnable city. It had been invaded successfully as people snuck into it and caught them while they were sleeping. They were asleep at the wheel and they allowed invaders to come into their city and take it over. So that's what Jesus tells them. You need to be awake or I will come when you least expect it. I will come like a thief. A thief does not announce when he's about to come. So we see this theme of a thief in the night in several places in Scripture, all of which are in reference to the second coming of Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 43. Jesus says, this is in his Olivet Discourse, and he says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
In other words, if the thief says, I'm going to come to your house at 1130 at night, so will you please, you know, have the lights on and have cookies available? We've got cookies available, by the way, next door. Then, you know, the guy at the house says, okay, well, I'm going to be waiting here with my, you know, my shotgun ready to shoot you if you ever step foot on my property. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then Peter in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All of these warnings of coming like a thief in the night are about the coming of the coming day of the Lord when Jesus comes in final judgment. Now, at that time of his return, the unbelieving world will be caught unawares. They will be caught asleep. They will not be expecting Jesus to come because they don't believe Jesus is going to come. They're going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. That's what Peter says in his work. It says, just like in the days of Noah, before the flood came, the people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They weren't expecting the day of the Lord to come in symbolic, uh, uh, in, in, in symbol form in the flood. But there enough, sure enough, the flood came and they were caught unawares. Jesus is telling the church in Sardis that they should, that should they not wake up, they too will be caught unawares when Jesus comes to take a reckoning of his church. And like Ephesus, Jesus will remove their lampstand. Now in verse 4, there is a glimmer of hope in Sardis, a spark of life, if you will, to use the old Monty Python from the Holy Grail. I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> Bring out your, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> Am I the only one who's seen that? Or anybody here a Monty Python fan? <laughs> okay, I guess I'm the only one. Okay. But there's a glimmer of hope. There's a remnant. Jesus gives encouragement to the remnant in verse 4. You still have yet a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So while the church itself is dead, there are still a few names in Sardis, a few people who have not fallen asleep at the spiritual wheel. They have not soiled their garments. And these few names in Sardis haven't completely compromised with the prevailing culture. And that's essentially what happened with Sardis. It was a church, you think about it. A church that is suffering no persecution, no pressure from the outside world, nothing like of that sort. Basically, it's a church that has completely given in to the world around it. Because why would, why would Satan need to throw persecution or anything when the church has completely given itself over willingly to the culture around it? I mean, you don't, you don't see persecution in the PCUSA, okay? You don't see persecution in the United Church of Christ because they... They drink and they speak the Kool-Aid of the common political correct woke culture that we're in. It's churches that stand for the truth that receive the persecution. So these few in this church have not soiled their garments. They have not given up the faith. These are true believers in a false church. Now this is encouraging to us because it also serves as a call to the greater church as a whole. While there are many churches and denominations that have completely abandoned the faith they've once professed, who have lost the marks of the true church, there's, there may be still some in those churches 
who have not sold their garments. There could be true believers in a false church. There could be true believers in the PCUSA. There could be true believers in the Roman Catholic Church. We need to reach out to these people with the true gospel and invite them into a true church. These faithful few names, Jesus says, will walk with him in white, for they are worthy. Now, this is an awesome privilege, right, to walk with Jesus. This is communion with the Lord. This is, speaks of our union and communion with Christ. A close-knit, I mean, it was said of Enoch, right, back in the Old Testament, that he walked with God, and then he was not. His life was so closely following the Lord that the Lord said, you know what, you're not going to die. I'm just going to take you with me right now. Okay, now again, Enoch wasn't perfect. Enoch wasn't sinlessly perfect. But his life was so committed, apparently, to following God that he walked with him. It was said of that in Genesis. And then God says, you're coming with me. I'm just going to, you're going to skip the whole death part. I'm going to bring you with me here right now. And this image of white garments looks forward to later visions in Revelation. In Revelation 6, verse 11, when we get there, Lord willing, this is when the fifth of the seven seals are opened. And there is a vision of slain martyrs under the heavenly altar. And these slain martyrs cry out to Jesus and they say, How long, O Lord? How long before you vindicate us? And Jesus has said, gives each of these people under the the altar a white robe and encourages them and says, just wait a little longer. It's coming. Just wait a little longer. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, we see a great multitude. John sees a vision of a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they are standing before the Lamb clothed in white robes. And we are later told that these are those who came out of the great tribulation. They have white robes because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And this is what makes these faithful few in Sardis worthy. They are worthy. They are not worthy because of their own merits, but because they are clothed in the white robes of Christ's righteousness. On the basis of this, their righteous deeds then are deemed worthy. Okay, when God rewards us in the end for our good deeds, it's not because our good deeds earn this reward. It is because God graciously condescends to reward our stumbling, fumbling, bumbling good works because he is a gracious God who accepts us in Christ. The example I like to use to illustrate this is you love your children when they're very small. You love them all the time, but when they're very small, I stop loving them when they get about this tall. (laughs) But when they're young and you love your children and they draw a picture of you. Now this picture is probably going to look like some warped, demented little stick figure thing with stringy hair and a crooked smile and maybe the eyes aren't quite right. And you don't say, trash that ugly picture. That doesn't look at me at all. Get rid of it. No. What do you do? You take that picture. You say, thank you. And you go over to your fridge and you put it on your fridge and you proudly display that. You reward that good work, even though it's, by all accounts, it's not a great piece of art, but it's a piece of art that your child drew for you. It's the same thing with our good works. Our good works are a demented little stick figure that we give to God and God says, thank you. 
I'm going to reward you because I'm a gracious, loving God who loves his children. So on, the basis, uh, on this basis, their righteous deeds are deemed worthy because they are already clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then finally, to the overcomer, the promise to the overcomer in verses 5 and 6. And it flows right out of verse 4 where Jesus says, The one who overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So to the one who overcomes, to the one who stays awake, he too will be clothed in white. There's a great vision in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 3 of Zechariah. It's a vision that the prophet has of the high priest Joshua. Not the Joshua, the son of Nun, who led the Israelites and conquered Canaan, but Joshua, the high priest, during the time of the post-exilic period when Israel had come out of exile in Babylon and repopulated the land, Joshua is the high priest. And there's this vision in Zechariah 3 where Joshua is standing there before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is there as well to accuse him. And Joshua is standing there in filthy garments. And the angel of the Lord says, remove those garments and put on him a festal robe. And that's the picture here where our clothes, our filthy clothes of sin and self-righteousness will be removed and we will be clothed in the white robe of Christ's righteousness. The one who overcomes will be clothed with the proper attire to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus also promises not to erase his name from the book of life. Now, we've talked about the book of life before. I'm not I'm trying to remember the context, but I know I've mentioned it at some point. It may have been in Revelation or some other study. But in Revelation chapter 20, and we'll get there eventually, eventually, eventually. But in Revelation chapter 20 is the scene of final judgment. And Jesus is sitting there on the great white throne. And all the dead are raised from the graves and they're brought before the great white throne for judgment. And we're told in that vision that books are opened. So many, many books are opened. And also, the book of life is opened. So you've got all these books, and then you've got the book of life. And it says that everyone will be judged based on what is written in the books. So you come before the great white throne, you come before Jesus, your great judge, and he's going to look at the books. And the books are the record of your deeds in this life. And he's going to look, and he's going to see what you've done. Now, all of us are going to fall short, right? Then he's going to look over here at the book of life and see, is your name here? Because if your name is here, in a sense, it doesn't matter what's here. Because this has been covered. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. And now you're wearing the perfect righteousness of Christ. So when you come before Jesus for judgment, he's going to look at you and not see what's in the books. He's going to see what he's going to see perfect Holiness and perfect obedience to the law because of faith. Salvation is, judgment is based on what's recorded in the books, but salvation is given to those whose names are in the book of life. And Jesus promises here to the one who overcomes in Sardis that your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. Our salvation is secured by the promises of Christ. 
And then finally, the third promise to the overcomer is that Jesus then will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is reminiscent of what happens in Matthew 10. When Jesus sends out the 12 in the gospel of Matthew, he sends out the 12 to go and and evangelize throughout the countryside in Israel. And he tells them, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And that promise is made and fulfilled right here in Revelation 3.5. Jesus says to the one who overcomes, to the one who confesses my name, I'm going to confess your name to my Father. The one who overcomes will be proudly and publicly acknowledged by Christ before God. And then Jesus closes with the familiar call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this, what he says here to Sardis is a message to all the churches, not just all seven churches, but all churches of every age, of every period, and every place in the world. So this is a word of warning and encouragement here to us at Emmanuel Reformed Church as well. And that's it for the letter to the church in Sardis. Next time, in two weeks, January 3rd, will be the new year. Yay, 2021 is here finally. <laughs> so Lord willing, we will look at the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the faithful church. We'll see that next time.